Retired FBI agent and one of the good guys who served for 31 years, David Baldovin joins us to peel back the layers of the onion on what was once a trusted government organization dedicated to the mission of expelling criminals from our midst with fidelity, bravery, and integrity. David gives his views on where things might have gone wrong and whether anything can be done to reform the FBI or whether it needs to be deep-sixed altogether. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and with my good friend Gary Humble, this is the Freedom Matters Podcast. Kevin, you have to give me a minute. I bet you our guest knows what this song is. Well, may I'm, he's happy to weigh in. <clears throat> David, not, do you recognize this I'm song? I'm not feeling it yet. Can't say that I do. Oh. <clears throat> so this is, the, <clears throat> this is the theme from the Rockford Files. You remember that show? I remember from the show. 70s, 70s television show, um... The character's name was Jim Rockford, played by the late James Garner. And um, theme song was written by... Do you know who the theme song was written by? No, sorry. Famous theme song writer of the 70s and, and early 80s. Also wrote Hill Street Blues theme song, wrote Magnum P.I. theme song, Greatest American Hero, Cagney and Lacey. Hey, and I remember Magnum P.I. Yeah. So that song um, was written by the same guy. Mike Post was his name. And the reason I chose this, I was looking for something that would be appropriate for you, David, our guest today, who I'll introduce uh, in just a moment, because Rockford Files was about a private investigator. And I always wanted to be a private investigator, like an FBI guy or CIA when I was growing up. And lo and behold, in the studio today, we have David Baldovin, my friend from, we've just figured out, about 12 years we've known each other. And David is a retired 31 years in the FBI. Correct. One of the good guys. And I thought it would be an appropriate follow-up podcast for us, Gary, uh, because we had Paul Vaughn last week talking about confronting an abusive FBI today. And I thought our audience would benefit from learning about uh, maybe the good old days, or at least some of what used to be uh, the good old days. And, and, and David, I want to kind of lead you down... Well, you know, you know, we're already on the radar. It is two weeks in a row digging into the FBI. Is <laughs> are that, we poking the are bear? We, yeah, is that how 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 hard are we willing to push? Well, I also want to stop you right there, Gary. You know, you say one of the good guys. Well, you just pointed at me it, and it, called me Gary. It depends. It, it depends, Kevin. It depends <laughs> how you define the word "good," doesn't it? Yes, it does. And we're going to talk about that because of an article that you wrote about the changing quality of words. By the way, we always, um, because we're audio only right now, a little theater of the mind, you have a shirt on that says Lions Not Sheep, which is kind of a shout out to J.P. Sears, right? Did you get that from J.P. Sears? I don't know J.P. personally. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but we know of him, right? We know of him, right. <laughs> lions no, Not there, Sheep. There's, there's a uh, Lions Not Sheep site that you can go to. And yes, order this and site. you have a Don't Tread on Me hat, although it's in army green, which I like. So it you, is. You look like you're... Your dress for the army. Your shirt's green, army green. Your hat's army green. OG, OG green. Yeah. If I didn't know better, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be kind of concerned. If I didn't know David was one of the good guys, I would be like 
closing my lips right now, not saying anything for fear. It's ready to rebel. How do you know I'm not undercover? Well, you might be. In which case, we're in trouble. And you've done a very good job if you are undercover, because this has been a 12-year, <laughs> and I'm going to end up walking out of here like hands behind my back. And <laughs> uh, maybe, Is that why you were so quick to accept my invitation? <laughs> this was their way in, Kevin. Yeah. You, you finally invited the end of the It's your fault. Into you the... had Paul Vaughn on. Okay. And then... <laughs> you see, I thought Gary was going to be uh, meet us uh, earlier, and uh, I was going to tell him that I had a uh, search warrant. Mm. For, the, for the premises. <laughs> he did come up to me, by the way, though. He came up to my office and he had his little FBI badge or something that he tried to tell me was his FBI badge. So, David, uh, welcome. Thank you for coming to the program under such short notice. And uh, we are back at the small table again, so we're all bumping knees here. And um, I thought it would be great first for you to tell us who you are, tell the audience who you are, why you're here, your interest um, in this subject matter because you sent me a few articles which we're going to talk about but you listen to our podcast on paul vaughn and the intimidation tactics that are used by today's fbi but tell us where did you get your start in the fbi because you aren't even though you've lived in the south for many years you're not you're a wisconsin boy right well uh the uh the secesh the soldiers the southern soldiers called us westerners uh, the soldiers from Wisconsin. So I'm not technically a Yankee, guys, okay? You're a Westerner? <laughs> I'm a Westerner. In right. Wisconsin? That's right. I think that's, got, an, that's an important distinction. You got you got to think about how the geography was mm-hmm. back then. And uh, the letter that this uh, soldier was writing home back to his friend said that the uh, the secessionists liked the people, or the, as, far as, we, as far as I know from the book, uh, the soldiers from Wisconsin because they treated them fairly. And this, this, these were secesh in captivity, okay, mm-hmm. in the South during the Civil War. And, and they treated them, uh, they treated the uh, Southern soldiers fairly. And uh, I don't know, I attribute that to the fact that we were both agrarians. We we're both rural people, mm-hmm. okay, whereas the true Yankees, right, came from the Northeast. I'm, I'm a true Yankee, by the way, came from Pennsylvania. Okay. Okay, this interview's over. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to get that out there. I'm originally from South Louisiana, so I'm so way you, down there. So oh. now I'm feeling uncomfortable. I've got. So you told me earlier this afternoon that, um, and refresh my memory, that even though you came from Wisconsin, you, you worked for a short time in Atlanta, but have spent most of your time, you did spend most of your time because you've been retired for a couple 20, decades. Right? 22 years. Yeah. Yep. So you've spent most of your time in Mississippi, Memphis, right, in the Correct. in rural areas. Correct. Yes. Uh, my first assignment out of, out of Quantico, out of new agents training, was to Atlanta, Georgia, a long time ago, maybe before the Rockford File days in mm. 1969. Yep. Rockford Files, 71 to 75, somewhere okay. there. Okay. And I spent a little over a year in Atlanta, and then they shipped me off to Mississippi, which was not uncommon. They uh, shipped northern guys to the south because of the aftermath of all the civil rights uh, mm-hmm. activities that t- took place in the 60s. And uh, most most of the real bad stuff uh, occurred uh, before I got there. So we were just dealing with the aftermath. But um, in that assignment in, in rural Mississippi, uh, I was assigned to surveil Ku Klux Klan meetings and so forth, which which I did. Which I think is interesting because, Gary, I asked David, I said, so how did you do that? And did they 
how, how could you, you know, hide yourself? And he said what? I said, I didn't hide myself. They knew who I was. They knew who we were if it wasn't me. Uh, you know, we had obvious cars, okay, with the antenna on the back. It looked like a cop car, okay? <laughs> you didn't have the red siren, though, that you pulled out of the glove might, box. Might, and... as, might as well have the blue bubble on the dash, you know, sort mm -hmm. of thing. No, they knew who we were. It's a, um, you're talking about the intimidation today, and that was the feel, The thought back then was we were there to uh, show the Klan that there was an FBI agent behind every bush, uh, every meeting they would have. Of course, back then they would advertise their meetings, they would put out bulletins uh, for their for their public meetings, and and, and, and we we would go there. And uh, I, I think I told you I had a, a fellow walk up to me. You know, I rolled down my, my my window on my car, and he had his little boy and his uh, his little, little uh, small son in his arms. And, wow! Yeah. Uh, so they they knew who we were, and we were just taking down uh, license plate numbers. You know, like you see, we used to do with the mob. You know, in in New York and so forth. So. That was all that was about. It wasn't anything that uh, I didn't consider myself in any danger. So back in the day also, so if you've been retired for 22 years and you served for 31, we're talking about a half a century ago at the beginning yep. of your time, uh, sure. your service, which means that technology wasn't what it is today. Uh, right? Nowhere so near the, what it was today. So the tools for <laughs> surveilling were much different. What 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 was it like if you were going on a stakeout for the FBI circa 1969, as you mentioned, in Atlanta. What does that look like relative to today when you've got phones and computers and... Oh, it would look like, uh, what, the caveman days, you know? Um, we just, we had two-way radios, uh, which uh, might or might not have worked, depending on where your, uh, uh, you know, your um, towers were and so forth. And a lot of times, we, we couldn't speak to each other. So, you know, it was, a lot of times it was... Um, you know the gang who couldn't shoot straight out there, and uh, I mean it. It it, it just has changed uh, a lot. And uh, you were behind an eight ball out there a lot of times. You didn't know if you had communication or not on a surveillance. But uh, usually you you weren't you weren't there by yourself. There was always somebody else or another car with you. Somebody had your back, or you had somebody else's back. Didn't you say that when you? So the process of the FBI, I don't know if this is the way today, but when a new person would join, they would be assigned for a period of six months to an older FBI or more experienced FBI agent to met, to mentor, right? That's true. And so you had this guy who was new when you had been in the bureau for a while. And what did he ask you? He asked me, um, this, was, this would have been uh, about the time, Gary, that Kevin came to, to Nashville. Well, we were in Memphis on a white-collar crime squad together, and uh, Chuck asked me, he said, uh, how do you find out all this stuff that you, that you find out? And I said, and, this, and the computers had just started coming out, and these, you know, these new guys would sit behind the desks with their computer and all this, and I said, Chuck, I said, you need to get up from behind that computer. I said, there's this thing called the telephone book. <laughs> <laughs> and and, <laughs> and I said, I look in the phone book and I find people's names and I find out what their address is and their their, um, their telephone number is. And then I go talk to people. And I said, you'll be surprised what people will tell you if uh, if you ask them a question. I'm not sure that's true today anymore with the FBI. Because people are more suspicious. Because people are more suspicious. At least, at least those people who are informed 
okay, and aware of what the subject matter is going to be that we're going to talk about, so, about what's going on with the FBI. Right. So if the FBI, Gary, came to you and started asking you questions, you wouldn't be so free and comfortable. Absolutely not. I'm just curious, too, because you're, you were uh, describing your assignment with the with the Ku Klux Klan down in Mississippi, and then you use the word later on surveillance. And so what I'm would you say was that the FBI's you know, more so their their what their operations were based upon throughout your tenure? Is it is is the FBI essentially a surveillance agency or was that your experience criminal investigative agency yeah that's i mean we had two uh, the intelligence portion the foreign counterintelligence part of the bureau which i never worked in except for one time on a cross-country surveillance of uh, kgb agents but uh, that was it just in that one instance but criminal investigation is what i did uh, and and I, I conducted civil rights investigations also. When you're in a rural place like Mississippi, working in small towns, you get a lot of the, um, even though you might not be on a civil rights squad, so to speak, uh, you, you'll get assigned a civil rights case because it could, it could actually end up being prosecuted criminally. So I want to I talk about SWAT teams for a minute. But before we do, uh, because I think you have something very uh, interesting to say about how SWAT teams came about and, and, and why perhaps they're being used with increasing measure even back in your day. But I, what I found interesting was the history, the family history of people that you were investigating. You told me that you wanted to get out of um, one division and get into white-collar crime because you began to see, am I correct, you, you, you would put people in jail and now you were investigating their children and they were going to end up being in jail. Right. Right. And, you know, that's a, a part of being in one place, I thought, a little bit too long, which was, uh, oh, you know, maybe about 11 years or so or, uh, plus. And um, I wanted to branch out into something, uh, something a little different. And I did work white collar crime. Um, it's still criminal cases. So I did work those kind of cases uh, even before I was assigned full time to a white collar crime squad. But, uh, I, you know, I, I just wanted to... Uh, get off the street, so to speak, and mm -hmm. not necessarily work fugitives anymore and respond to a bank robbery and, you know, things like that. Uh, I wanted to, to investigate the paper crimes and uh, t take my time in doing so. Well, I guess, too, Kevin, the, re the reason for my question was I was just kind of thinking about, because we were sort of talking about technology and how so much has changed. You know, he was, we were laughing about the difference between the the computer and going back to the phone book, and so I would I would just have to imagine that because I'm thinking about what happened to Paul Vaughn and the mm -hmm. I guess what you could say the is the what I see is the militarization of the mm -hmm. FBI and really the, the the police force at large. But I would have to imagine that the the typical day to day functions of the FBI have had to morph. Over the decades where, you know, back then you had so many agents that were involved in in surveillance of, um, you know, people in general, where I would have to imagine today that that might be the NSA or some other agencies, especially as technology has changed. You know, could it be that the FBI is less about surveillance today than it was, you know, back then? They're depending on other agencies and the FBI is more of the the muscle you know, sort of like we saw with with Paul. I don't know. I'm just. I have no idea. I'm just speculating. Well, it's, a good, it's a good. I'll use that word muscle 
because I think it's relevant to our discussion of the SWAT teams that David told me about. David, can you talk can about? I, can I respond to Gary for just yeah, a minute? Yeah, sure. Yeah, the uh, you know what I'm talking about back years ago was the physical surveillance. That's how you had to get your information, you know, yeah. and then and then put that together with other investigative techniques, interviews, and so forth. Uh, but no, there's still there's still surveillance squad, physical surveillance squads. I mean, one of the FBI whistleblowers, if you know his name, Kyle Serafin, that's what he did a lot of. Uh, he's uh, he was one of those that were interviewed, uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, by the uh, by the committee, uh, right. congressional committee, and uh, he, he did. Uh, so there's still full time surveillance squads, mm. <laughs> but they're surveilling us rather yeah. than the enemy, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Maybe so. Uh, what can I say to that? Yep. You know, it's been 22 years, but a lot has been fundamentally transformed, shall we say. Mm, okay. I recognize those words from yep. a, a certain president that was elected in 2008. So talk about this muscle, because I I was kind of stunned. We, we're aware with where the FBI has gone with its muscle today and the whole idea of intimidation being kind of the driving force, right? And the optics of can we can we bring a guy out in his underwear without his wallet and glasses and embarrass him on TV? Roger Stone, it, exactly, and right. um, also um, Clark, the attorney, second highest attorney in the Trump administration. Same thing happened to him. He's pulled out in the middle of the morning in front of his family. But tell us w what you saw in the early days of the FBI with regard to why there was an increased use of SWAT teams. Um, the actual, the start of SWAT teams in the Bureau, I think, began in 1973. Uh, and I think probably the LAPD was the first uh, law enforcement agency to uh, to form SWAT teams. And it was, you had to remember what was going on in, in Los Angeles mm -hmm. back in those days, okay? So you needed special weapons and, and tactics, tactics, okay? Which, by the way, do you know there was a television show called SWAT? That was also one of at the same time as Rockford Files. It was one of go. my favorite childhood programs. Special weapons and tactics. Right. My friends and I used to play SWAT all the time. But you know, it, it was something that was rarely used. Uh, Isn't it amazing how they've 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 trained us through the decades to to the perception that this stuff is awesome? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and we get a kid excited about it. Anyway, sorry. Right. It it. Uh, it changed throughout the years. Uh, we were rarely used. I mentioned to Kevin back in 1981, uh, myself and my partner and a sheriff and a deputy uh, arrested a top 10 fugitive. So four guys. Four guys. You didn't need a truck with 12 guys with, you know, heavily armored vehicles. and. Uh, that's true. We did not. And we didn't take the time. Now, the funny part of that story, though, is I, I got to tell this because we still laugh about it today when I say we, mm -hmm. those of us that are still around the uh, special agent in charge uh, said, don't do anything until I get there. See, he wanted a photo op. <laughs> he wanted of a, course. He, so wanted, that... he wanted a photo op. And uh, my partner says, no, screw him. He said, Where, this guy might get away. So yeah. we <laughs> got to so get my, the job done. So, so my, we get the job done. We, and, and, and my partner got his picture in the paper the next day. So, <laughs> But we were not in good stand from, stead with the SAC from there on. SAC being special agent in charge. So what was the motivation for SWAT team use? Special events, special weapons and tactics. I know, I mean, but... Yeah. but Sorry, maybe I'm not asking the question. What did you tell? Didn't you tell me that there was a a bonus <clears throat> structure or an, an well, enhanced? Well, this would have this would have come along later.
I saw an increasing use of SWAT teams probably in my last 10 years and maybe maybe the last five of my 10 years. Uh, you, you have to keep in mind that— um, So mid-90s? Right, mm-hmm. right. Early mid-90s, something like that. We were called out more, started to get up, called out more and more. And sometimes, you know, we would look at each other and we'd go, you know, we don't— we, what what are we getting called out for for this? But it was infrequent, okay? You know, everything, um, it just takes a little bit, you know, over time. Um, it, it didn't happen right away, but the SACs will have a rating on their on their um, uh, performance rating. Okay, how many times have you used a SWAT team in the last two years or whenever the last inspection was? They get a little bump, right? So, oh. the, so the usage of SWAT teams was measured... For purposes of promotion, it, in advancement, uh, awards, or uh, commendation from your su- supervisors, sure. Rather than d- d- do does, the, it does the situation merit it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, like I said, wow. it, it 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 wasn't that way to begin with. Okay, but well, it, everything starts it, off it, innocuous, it, right? It, it morphed right over time. It's a it's a, a gigantic. Uh, bureaucracy. So you would say and the you, SECs, the special agents in charge, are incentivized to find situations in which they can utilize these SWAT teams because uh, it bolsters their portfolio. I, w- I would uh, ask your listeners, uh, who's ever you know going to be listening to this, to just look at uh, Kyle Serafin's. Uh, I mentioned him earlier. He's mm-hmm. one of the whistleblowers. Uh, talking about the incentivization and, and maybe even one of the other uh, – the other guys too. The guy, the guy with the beard. Um, he's actually from Wisconsin too. Um, the guy with the beard. He, they, they're the wait, not Stephen Friend. Not Stephen Friend. It was the guy on the far right or left as you looked at at these uh, at the whistleblowers that testified. Um, Garrett O'Boyle is his name. Okay. Garrett, Garrett O'Boyle. O'Boyle. Yeah, he, uh, he testified. I believe it was him that um, the uh, supervisors were incentivized to get. Um, Wiretaps, mm-hmm. wiretaps. Okay, uh, she needed it for, in his words, I'm paraphrasing. She needed it for for her promotion. It's going to mm-hmm. look good on her resume, on her resume. So you see how. So uh, they're even wow. admitting that, it, right? Uh, just for a second, I don't have words for it because I didn't grow up that way. I grew up, I grew up in a way where you were taught to do things, quote unquote, the right way. And if anyone ever said, the reason I'm doing this is to get a promotion, I would have been an A in so much trouble. I would, probably would have been ridiculed by people of, of, of our day, right? And now the fact that there's no shame from these FBI agents admitting that the reason that they're taking these actions— well, they're not they're not admitting that in public, of course. But Garrett, even it, but it, even in private, right, right. I mean, it takes a guy like Garrett O'Boyle, the whistleblower, to to bring that out, you know. So here you have incentivization uh, for the use of a SWAT team. Okay, now you've got incentivization for uh, a Title Three wiretap, you know, on on a subject, even though it might not be necessary. And those things were few. And far between in my day, and you know, most of it was in in places like New York City uh, with the mob, you know. So, so what do you think has brought on the accelerate? You saw it, and you saw it start to happen. But what do you think is the? Are there any principal causes, in your opinion? Are there a multitude of causes that brought on the acceleration 
of the use of force and intimidation by the FBI. For example, we talked about Stephen Friend, and I think our audience knows he's one of the whistleblowers who was with the FBI until J6, and he was the reason he left the FBI and became a whistleblower is because he was asked to conduct a raid on people who had already said, we will turn ourselves in. And he said, that's enough. I can't, I can't stand by right. idly and accept this as FBI practice. Right. I mean, the, the name I'm going to attach to it is Barack Obama. Uh, is, is behind the scenes of all of this. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's being orchestrated through uh, corrupt Department of Justice. Well, also seems that the, the timing, right, of the increased, whether you want to say weaponization or incentivization of all of these tactics was under a, a Clinton administration at the time, you know, in the in the 90s. I guess I can't speak to that. I was compartmentalized, as I was telling, telling uh, Kevin, uh, to my little white-collar crime uh, squad in Memphis. But uh, we pretty much knew who and what Bill Clinton was, but we didn't talk about it in the office. Uh, except I did, I did bring up the fact that I was actually attached on, as part of the SWAT team to guard his uh, the main the main witness in the uh, in the Whitewater case from from back in the early to mid '90s over in Little Rock. So as part of my SWAT team, uh, we we did that. Wow, which was a legitimate use of it. Okay, sure, that was a legitimate use of a SWAT team. So, yeah, one, I think what you had told me in your view. While that stuff was happening in the Clinton administration, you also said there was pushback, like what happened at Waco and what happened at Ruby Ridge, even though publicly those were fiascos, there certainly was not agreement at the Bureau to proceed in that way. And so when those actions happened, you had other people saying, why did, you, why did the SWAT team overrule the negotiators? Right, right. There, there was uh, – you know, I'd like to clarify that. It, it wasn't that the, the FBI monolithically uh, chose to uh, – to take action in those cases. And, and first of all, we inherited both of those cases. Uh, the uh, ATF was the main agency on both of those cases, if you'll remember right, and we inherited both of those. But we had our, our negotiation unit and the negotiators um, argued a lot not to do what was done, okay, in, in both Ruby Ridge. And, and there was, uh, there was uh, two widespread and generalized Orders given out at Ruby Ridge, which, you know, the guy probably should have not taken the shot. But because of the orders, you know, he, he was uh, under certain orders that he construed to be, uh, you know, I need to do this. Mm-hmm. So, um, but we inherited those cases and they, they didn't turn out well. And I can tell you this, that, of course, I, I guess I was, I was glad I was not at uh, – at the time, at the time of uh, Waco, I was assigned to the DEA task force in Memphis. Uh, I guess you could say uh, my negotiation abilities or inabilities, whatever. Uh, the uh, FBI and the DEA in Memphis uh, were not getting along very well. Okay, so I was sent over there to kind of uh, bring bring our two offices together, and that's 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 where I was during the Waco incident. So, but my perception today is that there wouldn't be as much disagreement within these organizations because they all seem to be operating on the same worldview. Mm-hmm. Citizen is the enemy, government's in charge, and whether it's the IRS, the DEA, the ATF, FBI, CIA, 
like with Paul Vaughn, right? What was the authority? The guy didn't have a warrant. He just pointed to his vest and yeah. said, FBI, this See, is we all would the never, we, uh, we would have never done that. At least I wouldn't have. Okay. That's, that's just the arrogance and, and the authoritarianism uh, that comes along a lot of times with people when you give them a badge and a gun in, in law enforcement in general. Uh, and that's, that's unfortunate, but it tells you what's at the top. Uh, it tells you what's at the top and the uh, what's what's being um, conveyed down from the top. I like to liken it to an NFL football team. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you're not you're, you're going to be in disarray as a team if your if your owner and your general manager and so forth uh, aren't, aren't worth much. So, so tell us in your observation. So you now have been part of groups of of retired FBI agents who some of them are like you and they share a worldview and they share our concerns about what's happened with the corruption in the FBI. But you also expressed to me that some of your former FBI agents, colleagues, don't see it that way. They've, they've adopted, even though the FBI has changed radically from what its original mission was, which is what fidelity, bravery, integrity, at least that was in this letter, um, you're looking at me. I'm, I'm concerned. My no, sayings. they've taken an oath to an agency instead of to the Constitution. To the Constitution. Right. Uh, they find it difficult to go against. Uh, I was called out uh, by one of my former work partners who made his way up uh, high in the bureau over the years. Uh, I was I was uh, called out by him in in 2016 because uh, when 2017 when Trump fired Jim Comey mm-hmm. that uh, I wasn't loyal to the director of the agency that I formerly worked for. And I said, uh, sorry, you know, that that's not going to happen with, with me. So, and, and we see this in the military too, right? right? This, this loyalty to a man or to a federal bureaucracy exactly. rather than loyalty to the Constitution, which every officer of the government takes. You take a loyalty oath to the Constitution, not to a man, not to an agency. You take it to get a paycheck too, don't you? Yeah. That's that's mm. that's the sad – and that's the corruption. That's the reason for the corruption, right? The people taking taking the money is what influences a person's decision. It's how you corrupt people. Right. Um, you talked about Comey. I want to talk about this letter uh, a little bit that you sent us. I don't know if Gary had time to read it, but I thought when I got this letter that you had actually written it. But what you've explained to me since then is this letter, it was written to James Comey right after his confirmation in the summer of 2013, which for context was the same time that I was going through my battle with the IRS. So it's right at the beginning of the second term of the Obama administration. James Comey is confirmed as director of the FBI. And there's this awesome letter that was written from FBI, they were then current FBI, so active they duty FBI agents, yes. yep. who were expressing their concerns. They did it very uh, strategically because they weren't just cutting his legs out from under him from the start, but they were kind of setting the parameters, saying, "Look, you have an opportunity to be aware of the how the FBI has been changing, and you have an opportunity to stop that." Maybe they they knew, of course, that he wouldn't, but they're kind of putting themselves on record, weren't they? Uh, those are who I call would have been the patriots within, the patriots within the FBI. And I'm sure there's still many of them there. But, um, yeah, what uh, – of course, what the 
authors and the signatories on that uh, internal letter wrote. By the way, that was sent to me by a retired agent, another retired agent. It went not just to me; it went to other other retired agents also. But it gave us an insight into what was going on in the bureau, which we already we already knew was taking place uh, because of what we could see. Anybody who had eyes could could see what was going on. But this just this letter that uh, Kevin has in his hand here, which which I sent to him, is just confirmation of that from the inside. Um, it uh, that's an indictment. That letter is an indictment of. Robert Mueller is what it is. So even in 2013, you know, Gary, our audience probably thinks of DEI as something that's happened post-2020. Right. But Diversity, it, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. So even in 2013, you had concerned FBI agents within the FBI talking about the problem of they didn't, they didn't have equity in the term. They had diversity and inclusion section, mm -hmm. which was already manifesting itself within the FBI. This is 2013. Right. Wow. Yep. And you had agents who were concerned about that. Um, and they said that they, something I underlined here, said many field agents. So again, this is a letter from concerned agents within the FBI to Director Comey in 2013. He said, many field agents who accept 18-month temporary duty assignments and report to FBI headquarters have claimed that they are shocked by the culture of cowardice and self-preservation within the FBI. Can you speak to that? Uh, <laughs> I, I think that that's probably true. These, these folks at FBI headquarters really, in all honesty, have very little clue what we do out in the field or what we're supposed to be doing out in the field. Mm -hmm. uh, they're so far removed from reality. They're only uh, interested in their own self-preservation and climbing on the backs of each other to, to get up in the ranks. And isn't some of that because, as this letter points out, the people that the FBI has been hiring for years and years are not people with a law enforcement background as much or a military background as much, but people who are coming from the corporate environment. And that's why you have this disconnect between agents in the field and those who are giving them their orders. That would be very accurate. Uh, I would say that, that that would be the case. And like I mentioned, uh, one of my favorite directors was, was Louis Free, although lately I've come to learn a few things uh, that I've changed my mind somewhat. But still, he was, he was still a good director while I was on board. And um, he started really the— uh, uh, influx of some of the outside influence within the bureau because it, it was done through our computers. We didn't have really uh, much knowledge within the bureau itself of computer technology in the 90s, okay? And he came along in 93, so he brought people in from outside to uh, to work on our computer system. And that just sets the stage then for somebody like Bob Mueller, you mm -hmm. know, 10 years later, to bring in people like Andrew Weissman, right? Mm -hmm. And Sally Yates. I'm sure you're probably familiar yep. with those oh, names, yeah. aren't you? <clears throat> and then what's her name who was in relationship with Strzok, Peter Strzok Peter and— Oh, well, Lisa Page. She was a contractor, she right? Was, she, uh, she was a contractor, consultant, whatever you want to you know, call them. Yeah, she, see, the, the media portrays these people as FBI. Well, they're not FBI agents, okay? That's part of the, part of the problem here. Right. Is, uh, so yeah. they've lost— They've lost sight of the mission, right? The, in, the lost sight of what the mission was supposed to be, and now have completely therefore transformed the mission into diversity, equity, inclusion, going to, e again, even in 2013, Gary, 
this letter points out how concerned the FBI agents were that even then the FBI was spending a month to celebrate LGBT issues and was wow. only giving one day, right, to Christians and and, and barely a, a recognition of it. Right? I was going to bring that up if you didn't because, you know, the, the letter is obvious. It was uh, uh, a culture uh, against Christianity within mm -hmm. the Bureau back then. And what do you have in Richmond, Virginia? Uh, what, in the last six months or a year? You have the memo, right? That's that's written to infiltrate the, uh, the Catholic Church. So talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's... All I all I can talk about, Kevin, is what I read. Just you know, just like you do, you you, you do, and Gary does. Because, uh, but I I can see looking back, and uh, you know, I can see the maturation of this. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the person who wrote that, if I remember right, see, I don't think he was an FBI agent either. This, so the, you mean the one in Richmond? The one in Richmond, gotcha. right? He was some sort of a uh, consultant or a or a contractor, but. He didn't do that in a vacuum. Okay, right. he had he had supervisors that were supervising him. So it's uh, it's ridiculous to to make an argument like DOJ probably does or, or that uh, Christopher Ray probably does. Well, this was just a one-off. No, sorry. So I think it's important what you said and what this letter says, which is there is a definite bias now, and there has been for at least ten years against Christians and Christianity in the bureau, and. Speak to that now because this is exactly what Paul Vaughn, our guest from last week, was confronted with in Hickman County at his home, right? Well, what was his crime? As, as a citizen, that's what he felt, mm -hmm. you know, with these FBI agents at his door. You know, I didn't know. Again, I was I was working, not aware of it back then when, when he's talking about Randall Terry, mm -hmm. okay, and going, Operation back, Rescue. going, going yeah. back to the mid-90s and so forth. When this uh, FACE Act w yes. was passed, passed in well, guess, and guess what else was passed back then, which I said was bullshit when it was passed. What is that? You said I could use that yes. word. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah we're, not F <laughs> we're, we're not subject to FCC rules yet. Hate, hate crimes legislation. Who defines what's a hate crime and who defines Those who right? are in authority, right? Exactly. So, you know, and, and I, I was aware of that. But I was not aware of the FACE Act mm -hmm. uh, back then until I, and then I, you know, all of this stuff starts working in your mind and you can look back. And uh, like I was telling Kevin, you know, I can look back and see the seeds of all of this stuff or a lot of it planted during my career, which you don't put any significance on when you're, when, when you're, you're when it. you're in it. Mm -hmm. Okay. You don't see it. Mm -hmm. Now I'm outside of it and I can look at it from 35,000 feet. Well, and after so much has happened, too, you can see how those things were coming together. I, I want to point out again, too, from, from last week, the importance of the comment that Paul made in terms of the pamphlet that he brought that was being passed out in 1993, the year before the FACE Act was signed by Clinton in 94, and it was a pamphlet that was being handed out around Dallas by some local churches that that were advocating against the passage of the FACE Act because of the threat that this act would lead to Christians being persecuted and being put in federal prison. And it's just – it's incredible that here we are 30 years later, and that's exactly what's happening literally at the hands of the FBI. And I'm, I'm listening to all this, and I'm wondering – I'm, I'm hearing your experience, 
and you're acknowledging that coming into the 90s, you're, you're feeling the increased weaponization of the agency. You're feeling the increased incentivization of, of agents to act in these, in these ways by being motivated to get promotions, whatever it is, by using SWAT wiretaps against the citizens of America. And um, how do we combat that? Because it almost seems like these things are – with the hiring of, of folks like Comey and Christopher Ray and all the, that these these things are cultural, right? So there's there are these cultural things happening within the FBI, generationally almost it seems, but that really have made the agency sort of a a supra constitutional agency mm-hmm. by culture. But when that when what is now a super constitutional agency that has grown by this weaponization culture to to put this kind of force on the American people, and they they come at the people with the force of the federal government, how is that fixed? How do you combat that? <clears throat> I, it's, I'm glad you brought that up, Gary, because I had asked David his opinion, because I have mine. Do you think the FBI can be reformed? In fact, do you think any of these federal agencies which have clearly – overstepped their constitutional authority and even their original mission. Can they be reformed? I would just very briefly say that, in my opinion, they would have to be just about completely gutted and rebuilt. It's, uh, I think, as a whole, it's too far gone. And I'm saying that, keeping in mind that there's still going to be good people. Listen, yeah. listen there's white sure. hats in every agency. There's mm-hmm. civil wars going on, in my opinion, yeah. in, in the CIA and in the FBI, there's black hats and white hats, okay? Mm-hmm. So, but you, you've, you've got to gut, gut the, the rot out of it. And uh, that's going to be a hard thing to surmount. Now, you know, uh, you're talking about the culture. Well, we're talking about cultural Marxism, okay? Sure. Cultural Marxism has infiltrated the it's FBI. infiltrated the FBI, which, yeah. which is, you know, uh, we go to schools too, right? We're indoctrinated in the schools, Okay. Before you ever get to become an FBI That's agent, a great point. especially some of these uh, bureau folks that uh, have gone to Harvard uh, and mm-hmm. and and the Eastern, you know, schools. Yep. Uh, Trevor Loudon, you know, yes. Trevor, yeah. yep. Trevor, Trevor Loudon, he made a point. I was at a, a summit uh, about three or four years ago. He said one of the reasons the FBI was uh, the last to fall, as those are the words he used, is that uh, they recruited people from the heartland of America. Okay, whereas CIA recruits heavily from yeah from the elite class from, from the elite class. Okay, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and and of course that was always a a mission of the cultural Marxists was to uh, to attack the elites because uh, they, they you know they they buy into all this this magical thinking of of Marxism. So. Speaking of, and I want to use this to sort of round out our interview, David. You presented um, and provided to me from the congressional record. A, uh, a great – and Gary, I don't know if you had time to look at this list. There was a, a representative from the state of Florida in January of 1963. So you're a graduate from high school, by the way. It was four years before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> and 18 years before – no, uh, 15 years before Gary mm-hmm. was born, right? Yeah. So I won't read all of them, but I want to highlight he what he wanted to get on the congressional record. Uh, hair long? Yeah. Harelong Jr. was the name of the representative. He listed 45 of his concerns that came actually, and I brought this copy today, again, Theater of the Mind. See this book, Gary, The Naked Communists? Mm. 
Skousen um, informed this representative from Florida, and he compiled this list of his concerns about communism because he wanted to get it on the congressional record as to their tactics and the things that we should be concerned about. Well, number three on this list is to develop the illusion that total disarmament by the United States would be a demonstration of moral strength. Mm. That's number three. He also says, um, number 11, to promote the UN as the only hope for mankind. If its charter is rewritten, demand that it be set up as one world government with its own independent armed forces. So 1963, the communist plan. All right, so number 17, listen to this because you were just talking about schools and education and indoctrination. Get control of the schools. Use them as transmission belts for socialism and current communist propaganda. Soften the curriculum. Get control of teachers' associations. Put the party line in textbooks. And then you jump down to number 31. It says, belittle all forms of American culture and discourage the teaching of American history on the ground that it was only a minor part of the big picture. Discredit and eventually dismantle the FBI is number 35. So let's talk about that last one for a minute and kind of wrap this up. Wait, just so I'm clear. This is a list of 45 concerns of communism. So, so communist goals. Cleon Skousen had written this <clears throat> In a, in a couple of different formats. And number 35 is dismantle the FBI. Yeah, dismantle and discredit the FBI because at that time, the FBI was the biggest proponent against communism, right? right? You were going after right. communists. So they saw FBI as the enemy, and it seems to me that they haven't discredited and dismantled it, but they've co-opted the FBI. Am I mistaken? It's even better to become the FBI, right? <laughs> Yeah, wow. why, why destroy it if you can become the FBI? And what year was this list? 1963. 63. Wow. Yep. It's been going on for a long time. When, uh, you know, when I first started getting active, I, you know, beating myself down for, you know, uh, and a lot of us did. This this went on during our, you know, during our years and everything. Well, it's been going on for a long time, long before we ever came along. I'm sorry. I, I did leave off, too, that I wanted to make sure that we discussed May I? <laughs> this is so relevant today. You think of the fact in 1963, communism said if they got these things in play, if they advanced these initiatives, they would be having success. Transfer some of the powers of arrest from the police to social agencies. Wow. Yep. And then, not surprising, discredit the family as an institution, encourage promiscuity and easy divorce. Yeah, and things like like you mentioned earlier, they were celebrating LGBT and all these things. I mean, yeah, that's the, the destruction of the nuclear family, the mm-hmm. celebration of all that is opposite of what we know to be the created order. But people need to understand that this didn't just happen mm-hmm. gradually because our morals were in decline. This was a a deliberate effort, according to Marxism, right? There are people who are actually doing this affirmatively, not just letting it happen, but trying to institute these anti-American, anti-Christian regime. I've got a book out out in my car that I brought uh, that is a a succinct 200-plus page book on what the cultural Marxists did. And um, starting in the late 30s, early 40s, uh, at Yale Mm -hmm. and at Harvard and so forth, these were communists who escaped over here out of Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. And they came here 
to, you know, put into practice uh, what uh, John Dewey and so forth, right. you know, uh, in, in the schools and so forth. And it's never been the same since. So you can say that people will argue, well, this culture has changed. Well, it just happened. Well, maybe it didn't just happen. Exactly. This little book it that engineered. I've got, in, yeah, it's, it's been purposely engineered. The uh, co-opting or the destruction of the FBI, whatever you want to call it, is purposeful. It's 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 the Obama holder crowd. Okay, mm -hmm. the same folks who went after you, yep. and, and and others. Yep. Uh, you know what I find interesting about this conversation? I I was again, if you go back to last week, I know Paul was Paul was like, well, I've been I've I've processed through, through those emotions for a long time, but in in the span of our sixty minute interview, I'm going from frustrated to anxious to wanting to do. And I came into this conversation today thinking, you know, that we would find or discover some problems inherent in the FBI, you know, in the agency itself. But it's interesting where the conversation led and some and the point you made that, well, look who the FBI is recruiting. Well, they're recruiting all of these men and women that have now been indoctrinated mm -hmm. in a public education system, even even that used to be you know, mainly seen in the cities where you would recruit the elites, like to the CIA. But to your point, you know, rural America, you know, what, probably 20 years ago, began to to fall that education to all of these Marxist regimes and things. Mm -hmm. So you you there's nowhere where you can recruit from now in America where you where you do not have a generation that has been indoctrinated um, in this Marxist education system we have now. And so I just it's a little Anyway, I'm. It's just I'm in. I'm in enlarging my mind a bit as we think about these issues with the weaponization of the FBI. It's so much bigger, you know. It's the fact that we now have generations of men and women that serve in these roles that have a worldview that ideologically believe in the authoritarianism mm -hmm. that they practice. They don't inherently believe. In individual liberties and a free society. They believe in an authoritarian regime. At least one that I know of um, believes in the living constitution. Right. Okay. So uh, if you take an oath to Started a living— Started by Woodrow Wilson. By the way. If you take an yeah. oath to a living constitution, you've really taken an oath to nothing. Mm -hmm. Right? Because that oath means nothing tomorrow. Right. Might mean something today, but not tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and, it's, and it gets back to the—aside from reforming or completely— destroying the FBI as an institution, the bottom line is culture starts in the person, right? It starts in the heart. And so it's the way that we're raising our children. And I've, I've said this a lot of times when I, when I speak to groups, whether it's Bible studies or it's to larger church groups or even in political occasions, <clears throat> I've been criticized in the past for making the emphasis on personal moral responsibility, raising your children and those and and teaching those in your sphere to live according to the created order. But if we don't get it right there, it doesn't matter. It breaks right? everything. Yeah, that's that is the beginning and that is the salvation of culture speaking humanly, right? That if we teach our children according to a Christian worldview and they have those convictions, they're not going to be subject to the manipulation that would come through indoctrination later. But if you don't, they're always going to fall, aren't they? Should we recruit from Hillsdale College? 
That'd be a good That'd start. Be a good start, yeah. <laughs> for sure. I'm not sure where else, but that's a good start for well, sure. Well, but recruit from Gary's home and and my home and yeah. homes of friends and family of yours. I I think that that's the key, and I I don't think it's I don't think it's too simpleton to say that it starts in the home. If it doesn't start in the home, where else could it start? I think you and Gary are probably somewhat down on that hiring list, you know, fam- family for... Yeah, you mean as far as the FBI as goes? As far as the FBI, yeah. Yeah. the federal government. Probably, you know. probably. <laughs> you know, I, just just as we close, though, to, to think about, well, how do you fix this? Again, I'm just thinking about the, the problem and kind of where the discussion is led with where culture is. I mean, I would just submit that perhaps there was a day in America where the FBI was a legitimate and valuable agency predominantly because it had not yet in in some ways maybe exceeded its constitutional authority as it has now but 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 I would say mostly because there were men and women working within the agency that operated from a different worldview and cultural perspective mm-hmm. um I think where we are today I don't know that society can or, or that what we know as an American society can survive the existence of an FBI. You know, it would have to be gutted, and we need a cultural reset mm-hmm. <laughs> before we can effectively police ourselves again. Yeah. Because we, it seems we're going beyond that point, you know. One, I, one of the uh, best compliments that I've ever had uh, came at really after I was retired from a uh, – it came to me from – another agent who was still working but it was from a fellow that um we led a search warrant on in, in my last two three years in memphis uh white collar crime guy he was a cotton merchant and uh we had a case and he ended up pleading guilty on it and he told my friend my friend just ran across him happenstance after he did his time or whatever mm-hmm. he said you know he said uh that guy david baldwin he said he treated me right he treated me with respect hmm. now there's a subject of your investigation. Hmm. Now, I'm not telling you that to toot my own horn. Yeah. I'm telling you that because it's just a difference in the culture and how you treat people, yep. okay? There was no need to go in there and hard ass him, okay? Yep. Uh, so No, that's that's actually that's really compelling, David. I <laughs> I I doubt or I dare say there's there's none or very few people today who have been investigated by the FBI who later who say, would say that? thank you for treating me with respect, right? And that's a sad hey, statement on the affairs of the FBI. That's just how you treat people. Yeah. Well, thanks, David. Really appreciate you uh, coming on and, and educating us about the history of the FBI. Um, it's always sometimes a little bit depressing to hear how long this has been going on. But I, our job, Gary and I always talk about this, is to let people know these things because once people become aware, then there's culpability and then they can do something about it. And they're not, they can't claim ignorance mm-hmm. right after they know these things. And um, that's a step in the right well, direction. Listen, guys, it's it a pleasure to be here, honored to be here. And uh, in, in talking about what we're talking about, I've just read again for the umpteenth time Jeremiah. Okay. Amen. Jeremiah. And read the word of God is always a good recommendation. So, so uh, you know, he. Uh, Jeremiah was uh, speaking, but uh, they weren't listening, right? Mm-hmm. That's, all you, that's all you can do. That's you right. Do your part. That's our job is to proclaim, right? We can't persuade. It's a pleasure to have you in. Thanks for coming. Thank Thanks you, Saturday. Gary. Thanks, Kevin.
If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit tennesseestands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it. Thank you.